This guy's legit lifts the veil on entrepreneurship at every stage across industries. I'm Rachel Dorsey. You have the freedom to look at your expenses and see, are you literally just spending whatever you want, whenever you want? And do you make enough that you can do that, right? Are you buku loaded or are you just, you've got a nice job and therefore you can go on some trips and things like that. You need to know how much of your income you're spending because if you're making, you know, between a household well into the six figures, but you're saving no money, that's not gonna help you do what you wanna do. Yeah, you're living whatever lifestyle you want today, but you're never gonna be able to buy a home or afford to help your kids go through college. Magda Besser is the founder and CEO of Wealth in Hand, a financial wellness provider. You can find her online at Wealth in Hand. She started her career in private wealth management as a certified financial planner, where she went on to train and manage a team of advisors. A self-proclaimed finance nerd, Magda has been fascinated by money for as long as she can remember. And she's been educating around finance since the sixth grade, when she gave a presentation titled How the Stock Market Works. I joined her in her new home in Oakland to record this conversation. You're listening to This Guy's Legit. Magda, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me in your gorgeous home here in Oakland. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. We've been talking about this for, feels like, months, maybe even over a year. Um, yeah. So I'm really excited it's finally happening. Yeah. And I'm excited that your business is happening. Um, I want to hear a little bit, before we dive into the nitty gritty of the business, I want to hear a little bit about what you were like as a kid. Like, were you the, like, class banker? Like, what happened to, and maybe money didn't become a thing for you till later, but what were you like as a kid? Um, good question. I wish... There was such a thing as a class banker, and if there were, I probably wouldn't be doing this business because there'd be much more awareness of finance when you were young, but that is just not the case. Um, I actually tell a lot of stories of when I was a kid in my workshops that I do because I think it helps people understand, one, why I am such a finance nerd and that I'm not, quote unquote, like everybody else because I come from such a finance background, Um, and two, it just helps people Uh, relate that I'm a human um, in spite of my financial successes that I've had over the years. Um, So when I was a kid, my dad's been in finance his whole career. Um, He's been at City National Bank now for, I think, 40 years. You know how our parents' generation is. They stay at one company forever and we can't hold jobs for more than two years. Um, And so growing up uh, outside of me playing sports all the time and running around liking to be outside, I was always the finance person. Um, I had I got a uh, a cash register for my birthday. I think when I was like five, that I kept under my bed, and I just like to hoard real money there. Um, so all birthdays, holidays, um, my grandma would give us some money. My parents would you know give us a little bit chores, things like that. And so I would just hold on to it um, to buy stuff. I remember something I wanted so badly was an electric scooter which is kind of funny now that they're popular, but it's this big, bulky electric scooter that nobody would ever ride. It probably weighed like 100 pounds. And it was like $400, and so I saved for years um, because one of my friends got one for Christmas, and I really wanted one, so I saved for that. Um, My dad and I used to, in the mornings before school, he would always turn on 
the version of the stock market show called Squawk Box. And uh, we would just watch and I would wait to see the companies that he told me that we owned, like City National Bank, like Disney, and I'd watch to see when they'd come across the bottom of the screen. And if they were green, that means we're making money. And if they're red, that means we lost money. And we used to just do that in the morning, which is a very bizarre childhood for most people. Um, so I like to tell that that story alongside in that cash register. I used to have so much money after a while that my parents just used me as an ATM. Like, could you imagine if you needed a hundred bucks to go do something instead of having to, you know, get in the car, go drive to the ATM? You could just go into your daughter's bedroom, take a hundred dollars, write an IOU, and go do whatever it is you wanted to do. And I used to, I mean, I'd have probably four or five hundred dollars worth of IOUs, and then eventually they would go to the ATM, pull out all that money, replenish it, throw away the IOU cards, and we'd start over. Wow. Yeah. So you you were in a family where money was discussed openly, honestly, at the dinner table. It was just part of your everyday life. You know, I wouldn't... There were so many parts of money that were still very hush-hush because, I'll be frank, my part of my family comes from a lot of money. We didn't have access to it. And so my parents actually kept the finances hush-hush. Um, I think what was open was this concept of the stock market that just inadvertently talked about money. And because my dad watched it all the time, he would explain it to me. And I thought it was interesting. And I also am just, you know, a little OCD and a little anal. And it was fun for me to reach goals. And goals were things that maybe I could purchase. Um, It was very similar to goals I'd set, you know, on the soccer field or what have you. But there's things that I would see having maybe friends that were wealthy that they would get and we couldn't afford it. Or my parents didn't want to get it for me because they didn't think it was justified to buy you a $500 or $400 scooter. So I'd say, okay, well, how can I do that? And I would ask the question and they would take it as an opportunity to say, well, here's how you do it. You save the money until you can afford it. And so those lessons inadvertently came out, I would say, partially from my parents' you know, being open to have the conversation, but not necessarily, a lot of it was me kind of prodding and finding it interesting because my dad came from finance, but I never knew how much my parents made. We didn't really talk about budgeting per se. It just became part of the conversation. Like my sister's very, very different than I am. Um, and so she, she didn't learn a lot about finance until I really began a career doing this. And then that became something that she learned a lot about, but I would say yes and no to long-winded way yeah, to answer that. Yeah. So how did you get into finance as a career? Did you study it in college and then you got a job out of college? Like, tell me about your path. Yes. If you talk to one of my closest friends, their whole family knew before I entered college that I would end up in finance. So I also knew that uh, or thought that, but you just never know, right? So I, in school was still very into this concept of finance. There was an actual finance class, which was interesting to me, ended up being very boring because I already knew it in high school. But I, I went to school uh, to study economics, which is, you know, and I went to UC Davis, and so there was a version of it there. And um, I was in the finance investment club. I was the second woman in that. So, you know, very, very nerdy stuff here. And uh, I immediately went into a career that was very involved in finance and I knew this was just kind of the path that I was going to go down. I knew it because I took other classes in college and the advice I give to folks all the time is when you're passionate about something, it's easy. It's like when you realize the person maybe you're going to marry. That relationship's not hard. There might be challenges, um, but that's a good thing. 
same thing is true when you find something that you really want to do for the rest of your life. You enjoy going to class. You enjoy learning. You enjoy talking about it. And that was always the way finance was for me. And so how did you make the leap from your first job in finance to like building your career in finance and then deciding to like cut the parachute and go go after it alone? A lot of it came from confidence building. So I started my job right out of school where I was basically doing operations, which in finance is if you're ever moving an account from, you know, Bank of America to Wells Fargo or TD Ameritrade to Charles Schwab, there's somebody back there who's pushing a bunch of buttons to make that happen after you, or sending you paperwork, maybe not today's paperwork, but something to sign and making sure your money actually gets from point A to point B. So I started off doing that and then very quickly through my abilities and also through happenstance that they needed to move people out of positions, I ended up becoming their version of an advisor, which is called an investment counselor. So we didn't really make sales. We just advised people on their money. And I was one of the youngest to do it, let alone one of the youngest females to do it. And very quickly from that, they moved me into a training role where I would train all new advisors and then got brought into a manager position. So my progression there happened over the course of five years, which is one, a tribute to that company's ability to be confident in somebody who's good. Um, and just the fact that you know you don't have to have your career go in a certain way. And I built a lot of confidence from their confidence in a 26-year-old managing grown-ass adults on how they're advising their clients. Um, and so I stumbled into... I had so many friends and family at the time constantly coming up to me with their 401k packets saying, hey, what do I do with this? And I just couldn't believe there wasn't an answer to that question, let alone there wasn't somebody teaching them how to do it. So I sit down with a lot of them, talk to them about investing, tell them where to put it, etc. Then I saw people in my own company asking me the question. I was like, you work in finance. Why don't you know the answer to this? So I went to our class in the finance company and it was horrendous. Some old man in his you know, late 70s, there are five people in the class, two of them are falling asleep. Um, and I thought, well, that answers it. That's why nobody's learning. So I realized through my training role and through my excitement of finance, I want to help people do this. I really like talking to them about it. I like seeing them go, oh, that's how you do this. Uh, so I decided I don't really know a lot about running a business. I really don't want to pay $200,000 to go to business school to learn um, and not make money during that time. So I decided I'd take my career to a startup where I could see how businesses are run on a smaller scale, maybe somewhere close to the version of something that I would build. So I went to a, a startup in fintech. And after progressing there fairly quickly into something that has very little to do with finance, but a lot more to do with the business side. I was there two and a half years longer than I thought I would be because I'm a loyalist and that always happens to me. Um, and I realized if I can figure out how to do what I was doing there, which is implementing software, which is so far from finance and do it successfully, there's nothing I can't do. So I thought now's the time. You are married in a very happy relationship with somebody who supports you. Therefore, you get health insurance, which I always tell people if you're quitting your job. Um, 
And so I thought, this is going to be the time to do it. If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And so I jumped in head first. Wow. Wow. So what was your biggest fear when you made that transition? You know, most people's biggest fear, maybe not most people, I think what people would assume my biggest fear was is I'm not, how can you not have an income? And for how long are you not going to have an income? My biggest fear, and to this day, remains not being successful. Not ultimately being able to make this into a business that I can live off of is will will remain my fear probably even if I end up making millions of dollars doing it because there'll be something else that I'm trying to achieve alongside this business that will push me but will always be my fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that is a quality that sort of transcends industries. It's like if you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. And if you're an entrepreneur, nothing is ever good enough. Everything, there's always the next thing to, to preneur. There's always the next thing to create, the next thing to do. Um, so sounds to me like you check, you check the boxes. <laughs> so um, have you, have you, have you any idea of, of what success will look like for you? Like, is it making millions of dollars? Is it being a keynote speaker? Is it, you know, having a building with like a million advisors under you? Like, what is it that is going to look like success? I have thought about it. And it's, in my mind, it's a very long road. So it's, as much as I like to be a dreamer, I try and box it a little bit so that I don't get too carried away. And, and I also don't want to formulate a path that maybe is not the right one, such that I don't ever let myself veer. But I think where I want this business to ultimately go is, I understand that teaching financial education workshops may ultimately become quote unquote boring because I'll be teaching the same material on a regular basis. Um, Right now it's not, it's exciting and I love it. But I think what I want to do is build a team where I train advisors on how to be amazing at advising and teaching and coaching and all the things that a lot of times you can't find in an advisor because they're incentivized by sales. And so if there's a way to build a business where they don't have to be incentivized by sales, because there's so many, even today, I get people reaching out to me, old colleagues that say, Magda, I love what you're doing. I would love to just help people with their finance. I'm like, great, that's what an advisor is. Um, But there's so many ways that you're incentivized inappropriately as an advisor that forces you to not be able to do that. And so if there's a career I can help build for those folks who just really like to teach and really like to help people and get them on the right track, I would love to become basically a mentor for a large business that, you know, helping us build a great training program and helping more people do this business. So from a, from the money side, um, you know, it often takes businesses several years of investing in yourself before you ever turn a profit. So for someone who's looking at you and saying, well, how, how is she doing this? She just, you know, you've been pretty open about money online. Like, um, you know, you left a, I think it was a six figure salary, um, to go and do, you know, to, to do this. So how did you, how did you give yourself the, how did you create the financial freedom for yourself to be able to make that investment? Is it that your husband makes enough money that he can support the both of you? Is it that you saved money for a long time or you made investments and then pulled money out of them to pay yourself? Give me the real, real. It's a combination of both. And it, a lot of it is based on the stage of my life. So I want, I've been wanting to do this business probably for about six or seven years. 
Had I done it six or seven years ago, I wouldn't have needed necessarily to have my husband helping to pay for things because my expenses were far lower and I'm only responsible for myself. So if I decide I'm no longer taking lifts anywhere, I'm no longer eating out anywhere, I'm no longer traveling, I can cut my expenses to almost nothing. Um, and I would have enough savings to live off of that and I was in a rent-controlled apartment, etc. Now that I'm older, I have a mortgage, we just have learned to live a, a, a nicer lifestyle. To be fair, since I started this job, I haven't bought a single article of clothing. Uh, I have probably taken four lifts. It's been literally six months. Um, and so I, I personally have cut my lifestyle so that I don't have to have my husband cut his because he is still working and he is, in theory, paying the upfront bills. Now we are taking, I am taking money as needed, which because I am keeping my half of the expenses very low, we don't really need it because he does have a well-paying job, but we can take it out of our investments. Um, the way we did it, we purchased this house and I said, listen, I don't have an income right now, but I have more saved than you because I'm Magda and I've been saving since I was 12. So I'm going to pay more for the down payment because you are probably going to be paying more over the next year or two while I build this business and you can generate that from your income. I can generate that from my what I've saved. But in a nutshell, he is paying for most of our, almost all of our basic expenses and I haven't yet had to dip into any additional savings in order to cover it. But things may change because, you know, we're going to go on trips and we're still going to try and live a, a normal lifestyle the way that we can. And if that's the case, I can definitely, and I have to remind myself of this because I don't like to spend money, I can dip into my savings. That's what it's there for. Mm -hmm. So then it comes out of savings, which is investments for me. Right. Great. So, um, you know, you mentioned before that you were, you know, one of, you were the youngest person to ever hold the job. You were also like the youngest female to ever have the job working in a male dominated industry. And then now, um, having, you know, being a leader in, in, and of your own business, um, have you ever encountered challenges purely because of your gender identity? Yeah, all the time. I like it though. Um, I find it to be a challenge. I, I enjoy, and maybe this is my sick version of this picture, which I wish more women had, but I enjoy walking into a room with a bunch of men that I know are probably looking at me different because I'm a woman, just so that by the end of that meeting, they turn around and go, oh, she's, she's legit. Mm -hmm. She's smart. Mm -hmm. um, because I know that will happen. I know that will happen because I've worked with men for so long and not to say that they're a category, but I am confident and I know my stuff and I only speak up when I know my stuff. I don't talk when I don't know what I'm talking about just to be, just to speak. Um, and so I think in some ways I find it to be valuable to be a female in a male dominated industry because you stand out if you can be confident and successful at it as opposed to another face in the crowd. Now, I'm sure that will, I can get some heat for saying that, but I think if you know and you can be confident and not let, you know, the fact that maybe you're the only one in the room or maybe just a handful of you in the room deter you from speaking up when you need to and voicing your opinion, I think you can be a very powerful person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So have you, have you had any big breaks yet? Or, um, 
you know, as you've gone through your career, have there been moments that you can point to and say like, this was a, this was an ignition. Like this was a pivot point for me that, that made a big difference. I think in my, in my career, landing the job where I became a trainer was, was pivotal because it made me realize how much I like to teach. And I probably wouldn't have gone down this path had I not had that experience. Um, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, doing something that's completely outside of my comfort zone and being able to do it fairly well was also crucial in building the confidence I needed to do this. So I had I not had those two things, I don't think I, and having a loving, supporting husband um, has made it just so much easier to dive in. It doesn't make the day-to-day easier, um, but it makes making the decision a little bit easier. Um, so I think those have really helped me kind of get started. So if, um, I, I know that with finance, there is no such thing as, as one size fits all. It's like you sort of have to meet the people where they're at and then help make a plan for them from there. But if we were to separate people into the, you know, people who have, um, you know, a solid income, some money in the bank, um, and they need to know what to do with it, and then this other population where um, paycheck to paycheck, scraping by with bills and debt. Um, I'd like to hear maybe like two or three pieces of advice for each group, and we'll start with the haves. The folks who have a, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. Uh, there's definitely not one size fits all. A lot of it boils down to I need to know what your goals and objectives are. If you don't ever want to have kids, great. They're very expensive. Um, do you want to buy a home? Things like, I mean, all those things factor into how you save. But if you have something, the most valuable thing is to figure out where that money should be going and how much of it you should be spending. So you want to, you have the freedom to look at your expenses and see, are you literally just spending whatever you want, whenever you want? And do you make enough that you can do that, right? Are you buku loaded or are you just you've got a nice job and therefore you can go on some trips and things like that you need to know how much of your income you're spending because if you're making you know between a household well into the six figures but you're saving no money that's not going to help you do what you want to do yeah you're living whatever lifestyle you want today but you're never going to be able to buy a home or afford to help your kids go through college so for those folks it's about Let's make sure we know how much you're spending, maybe cut it back, and then automatically move money into savings accounts. Whether or not they're invested is going to depend on when you need that money, but you need to be pulling money out, putting it into separate accounts so you don't see it and you don't spend it. And that's how the money accumulates over time. Some people, I mean, when I do my one-on-one sessions, some people will, I'll say, you know, how much do you have in this account? They say, I don't know. I really haven't looked at it in five or six years. And they log in, they literally are shocked. That's what I love. I love what you haven't looked at this in so long, but you've been automatically moving money into it and it's been invested that next thing you know, you turn around and you got $50,000, $100,000 in there because you've just been doing it without even thinking. That's what those folks need to be thinking about is how do I build this such that I have wealth that I can use for the things that I want someday. Um, for the folks that are living paycheck to paycheck, this is where your expenses become really, really important. Um, you more than anyone need to know where your money is going. You need to make sure you're not spending on subscriptions or things that are unnecessary and find ways to budget, right? No, you don't take lifts everywhere. 
Um, you got to take public transportation, ride your bike if you can, things like that. And you also need to figure out the order of operation of what you're paying for. So if you have debt, which is a big reason why people are living paycheck to paycheck, is there any way to bring down the interest rate on that? Can you negotiate with the lender? Um, are you living in an apartment that's way too expensive? Do you really want to live in a studio because you really want to live in a studio, but you live maybe in San Francisco and you shouldn't and you can't afford that? Do you need to live with roommates? I don't care if you're 35. If you need to live with a roommate, you need to live with a roommate. Maybe you move out of state to lower your expenses, but they have more challenging things that they have to work on. And most of it has to do with two things, cut your expenses where you can and find a way to make more money. Whether it's a side hustle, whether it's don't forget to ask for a raise every year, make sure you're at a company that values raises every year, even if it's just one or 2%. Um, you know, I know it's hard for some folks because especially, you know, those who may be living paycheck to paycheck, they have more of the arts type of careers where, you know, they're, they're doing something where they're in a nonprofit or helping folks in need. There's nothing wrong with that, but you have to recognize if you're doing that in San Francisco, which is one of the most expensive places to live, you have to find a way that you can still have expenses that are below what you're making because you won't ever be able to achieve maybe longer term goals or you're constantly going to be adding to your debt because your car is going to break down one day and it's going to cost you three grand and that should not go on a credit card. And so you have to build up enough savings that those things can come out of a savings account instead of just onto a credit card. For people who didn't grow up with understanding the concept of credit, um, I'll back up to say that there are a lot of people that I know who who use their credit cards like it's free money. And I, I actually, I use my credit card for everything, but I pay it off three or four times a month. Right. So I never carry a balance. I, I've maybe once paid an interest rate. Once. Right. right. My whole life. And it was an accident. And I think I got it turned around. But the point is... <laughs> A lot of people don't do it that way. A lot of people say like, I need, I want this so I, and I deserve it. So I need it now. And I, um, you know, they don't, they don't think about the interest at like rolling in to, to the overall expense. Like how can you, what can you say to someone like that to help them reframe the way that they think about credit? A couple things. One, my mantra around credit is, if, if you don't have it in your bank account, like your checking account, you can't afford it. Credit cards are an extension of your bank account with a way to get free points and things that you can use on, th- on you know, getting stuff for free later, like cash back or travel or whatever it is. Your credit card is not supposed to even get you out of a pinch. That's what your savings account is for. Your savings account is another cash account that should be used when you're in a pinch not your credit card. You know, the I can throw statistics at people that make them cringe, which is if you had $5,000 of debt and you just paid the minimum, by the time you paid it off, that $5,000, whatever it is that you bought, your TV or what have you, you actually paid, depending on your industry, anywhere between the fourteen dollars to $17,000 for that. What? That's crazy, right? Can you, I mean, principally, I, I'm annoyed that I just paid this company 
three times as much as the value of the thing that I bought because I really wanted it that day when I could have just paid $5,000 for it. So credit is definitely looked at as free money. It's not. It's really, 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 really expensive money. It's the most expensive form of borrowing. It's more expensive than borrowing for a house. It's more expensive than if you have medical bills. It's more expensive than if you have a car loan. And what I mean by that is the interest rate, right? So your average interest rate for a credit card is going to be anywhere between 15 to 30%. Your average mortgage, 4%. Car loan, maybe eight or nine, depending on your credit. Um, student, same thing, right? They're going to be so low. And so because we have such access to swiping the card, we forget that they're charging 20% on top of what we buy if we don't pay it back. Mm. Thank you yeah. for saying that. I think a lot of people, something that makes me cringe is how little financial education is out there, which is why, which is one of the many reasons that when I heard you were launching Wealth in Hand, I was like absolutely pumped because I, I'm a, I'm pretty educated about money. It, it was a, a conversation topic at my dinner table. It was, you know, I learned how to use credit cards. I learned how to save money. I learned how to invest. Um, and I still feel like I know nothing. And so when I think about what a privileged position I'm in because I had that education and, and when I think about that that's actually like super rare, I think that what you're doing um, is is super important. And I think that it's a huge gift, especially because you give away so much free knowledge just on your on your channel. Um, I'm curious what big companies can do to support their employees. Like big companies, especially here in the city, you know, and the, the in the Bay Area, like they're paying their they're paying their top employees good money but they're not doing anything to, to tell them, to give them education around it. Um, so what can a company do to um, do a better job of equipping their, their employees to, to make the, the best of their, of their nice paychecks? Yeah, you know, the, the number one thing you can do if you care about your employees, um, which these businesses should, is educate them. Right? You know, there's so much information out there about finance. You could absolutely spend years reading through all the opinions of everything that everyone has. Not to say that some aren't valuable, but as an individual person, it's really hard to know what's right, what's right and what's wrong. And so if you can have an educator there who can help you kind of narrow that in, uh, narrow that down, that is really valuable. It's why I think the workshops that we do are the most value you can add to the business because you get a group of 40 people in there who learn for the first time what an emergency fund is, right? Never knew that that's a thing. Didn't know that you're supposed to save X amount of dollars based on your expenses in a savings account so that you don't have to swipe your credit card when you get into a car accident. Um, and, and just that little piece of information, if that's the only thing they take away from the workshop is magical because you know, these people don't read finance. The people that read finance are people like me who have, you know, have it all together. It's the people that don't care about it and just, you know, hearsay from friends and family who maybe are giving them bad advice, maybe not. And so paying for that service to help them be smarter with their money so that they don't have to keep asking for more and more and more and more and more in salary above and beyond maybe the, the, the bonuses or the raises that they can give and have to leave your business to go and make more money somewhere else because 
they are getting educated on how to properly save and work within the raise schedule maybe that you have. Um, and then the other way that businesses can help is to give them a way to have a one-on-one because you know these workshops can only go so far. Some questions that come out of them are, hey Magda, so you know my grandmother passed away, I'm going to inherit $50,000, I have no idea what to do with that. That's not a question that you should be asking in the middle of a workshop. Um, is very personal and specific and an advisor needs to know a lot more about a lot of things you're doing in order to answer that question. And so they can either, the business can help set you up by saying, here's somebody you can talk to about this or they can pay for one-on-one sessions so that employees have access to a certified financial planner who can answer them. You know, the, the thing we struggle with the most is there are advisors who will do these types of things for free so that they can sell a product at the end of the workshop or sometimes they do it through a little bit of fear where they say you know i just wrote a blog article on investor shaming where they kind of make you feel bad that you haven't been doing these things and you need to talk to an advisor right away otherwise you're going to obliterate your future um and so those things are are totally unnecessary um for for the folks who need help they if they find somebody they trust and who knows their stuff they will come and talk to you. You don't have to sell them something. You don't have to instill fear. So many people need help with their finances. It's just, you know, giving them as a business an opportunity to have an outlet for that is hugely valuable and not that expensive to your bottom line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. I find that when something's, anything that's free is not really free. Like, is it really free or like are they trying to sell you something on the back end or get you into their pipeline or um you know I think it's it and also deciding when it comes to something that has carries so much stigma money like we are cultured not to speak about money not to share what we earn not to share what we spend not to share and I think that that sort of secrecy that like cultural secrecy around money really um, keeps people from reaching their peak potential. Um, I was in a I was in a job where um, I was making like thirty thousand dollars less than my predecessor, but I was doing exponentially more. And everyone was telling me, "Wow, you're doing so much! Wow, you're so amazing!" Like they didn't do anything. You're doing all this stuff, and it was like, "Yeah, that feels great." Until I had a mentor who came in and said, "Like, hey, P.S. He made thirty k more than you, mm-hmm. so you should probably speak up for yourself." Yep. And when they didn't, I did. And when they didn't meet that the way they should have, um, I had to leave because it's like, you pay me, you know, but if we aren't talking about money, we will never know. That was such a gift that she gave me to tell me to sort of like remove the blinders and share that transparency. And I, when I'm with my friends and, you know, I had friends who were buying houses, friends who were, you know, investing in businesses. And like, I always ask the money question, but like, how much did it really cost? And how much are you really putting into it? And how much are you really saving? And so I, on the other hand, am then transparent if they ask me the same question because how else are we supposed to know? And so I think that when these companies invest in someone like you to come in and to give that education in a way that is non-shaming and is non-judgmental and is, you know, when possible, you know, curated specifically for the person who needs the support, um, wow, what a gift. And it shows your employees that you that you appreciate them, that you are investing in them in the longevity of, of their future, and then they're gonna come back and do that for you as well. Yeah, and, and you really you really see how much and you know, listen, 
everyone doesn't like this stuff. I, I never tell an employer that you're going to get even close to 100% participation because there's plenty of Magda sitting in that crowd who are like, I've got it where they have a financial advisor that they like and they trust, which is great. But there's so many more people, which is why I really like the workshops because it kind of drags these people out who maybe otherwise would have never done it to learn something and then they can just quietly leave and, and but they learn something. Um, but you know, I see a lot of people in these workshops when they're done, they're just so jazzed about finance, right? Because if you can teach it in a way that makes it, takes away the complication of it and the uncertainty and how does this work? They're like, I can do that too. That, that makes complete sense. Let me get started on that. And in a lot of the workshops, we actually let them get started in real time. Like in our Investing 101, we actually have people open investment accounts so that when they leave, the account's open. All they have to do is decide you know, what they want to buy or if they go with a robo. They literally just have to transfer the assets. And so it's not a, I learned, I left, I got busy and I forgot, um, which is part of what we try and do is make sure that the I'm busy and I forgot goes away. But you do find people afterwards who really start to think, I can do this and I can be successful with my money and I don't have to have so many questions anymore. It's very simple to just get the ball rolling. And then 10 years later, they look back and they're like, I don't need you at all anymore because I am just crushing it. And I'm like, great. That's what I wanted. So you're at the very beginning of stages of this business. You're you know well into your career, but for this business you know, you're at the very beginning. And when a person's at the beginning of their business, it's like you're do ev- doing everything all the time. You're HR, your operations, you're the, you know, the CEO, you're the admin, you're every single thing. Um, and so um, I'm curious how you stay inspired and how you recharge and how you invest in yourself while you're also trying to grow this business, bootstrapping it. You know, it's hard. Because I spend probably 70% of my time doing the two things that I have no desire to do, which is marketing and sales. And I want to teach finance. I want to build content and I want to help grow a financial education business. And that's just not the way that businesses are to start. It's all those things that you listed, very little of which are actually why you're in the business. Um, And so I think... I today stay motivated with the um, little victories that I get in that I, if I get a contract signed, I am to the moon, right? Um, Every time somebody reaches out to me for a one-on-one, my one-on-one business was not intended to be a business. I was intending to go only B2B and talk to employers and have them help educate a lot of people, but the one-on-one side is actually doing very well. And... I get excited when somebody says, I'm a little worried about my finances. I really like to talk to somebody about it and I do a consultation with them and I get to know a new person and um, get excited about all the things I can can help them with. And I really like, I really come to love those one-on-one sessions with people I've never met um, and building those relationships. So I think those, the one-on-ones in particular, that's what's keeping the business afloat at the moment um, because they happen so much quicker than signing a contract with an employer. Um, And I think every time I do one of those, it just reminds me when I see that person by the end of it say, Magda, gosh, there's so much good stuff here. I'm so excited. And I follow up with them in two months and they're like, I've been doing, you know, this, this, and this. Things are already happening. um, And they feel proud to say, look at what I've done. 
those are the kinds of things that really keep me going and remind me why this is what I started. So how do you use social media and how do you create intentional boundaries in this world where, um, you know, the lines of real life and online life are so blurry? Um, and both how do you use social media from a personal perspective and then also how do you use it to grow your business? I don't use social media for personal reasons. I just don't have the time. Um, my closest friends and family know that very well. You know, they'll be talking about something at a wedding that happened and I, and I have no idea what they're talking about. And they're like, oh, Maggie, you didn't see the Snapchat or you didn't see the Instagram. I'm like, nope, I didn't. Sorry. Haven't checked it in a week or two or what have you. Um, so I've always been very bad about that, which is why I'm not the best at marketing because I actually didn't even know how to make a story on Instagram until probably a couple months ago um, when I realized I should probably do that. Um, so personal, almost nothing. For the business, I'm trying to use social media as a means to prove my abilities. Um, so it's basically what it's turned into is it's letting anyone in my network know that I started this business. And that helps other people say, like yourself, I love what you're doing. I've always wanted somebody to do this. And I say, great, I do that now. So if anything comes up, I'm hoping that somebody will refer me. And that's kind of how it has started is I know a lot of people through my career in San Francisco who work at small startups, of course, here. Um, and so I've been connected to people. Some I am more successful with than others. It really just depends on budgeting. But a lot of the... Um, a lot of it has come from word of mouth through my social media to people I haven't spoken to in 10 years. And next thing I know, somebody reaches out to me for a one-on-one -on -one that I was referred to by somebody I went to high school with. Um, so my main social media channel is LinkedIn because, you know, as an advisor, you kind of have to blend your personal with your business because I don't want people to think I have a persona I love finance, finance is me, and the more stories I can tell about myself and the more opinions I can give that are real about how I feel about finance for better or for worse, the more that person can assess if I'm the right person to work with. Um, I don't want them to think I'm one person then hop on the phone with me and say, whoa, you are, you know, I don't, I don't know what they would say differently, but I, I want those two to match up. Mm-hmm. What are you excited to try this year? Is there anything, I mean, everything you're doing right now is brand new. Is there any one thing that you're like really, really pumped about? Uh, so I have 12 workshops that I've uh, created of which I've only taught five. So I'm excited to build all the content for all of those because I haven't, I haven't had a need to. And as I do more, more workshops, even the, the existing ones, I get more questions and it helps me really build out content for other workshops. So I'm excited to see how they go. I'm excited to see, you know, if a class I build on how to raise financially stable children really is impactful, right? Do I have enough content in there that they still walk out thinking, I learned a lot, I have things I can take away, I've got a piece of paper with a bunch of information on it that I can take to my spouse or whomever and I can use this, or are some of these gonna fall flat and they're not going to be as valuable as I'd like. So I'm excited to see what the right content is to really help as many people as I can. How do you decide if a project or a partnership or a client is the right fit for you? It's hard. Uh, because I don't come from a sales background, I get excited anytime somebody says they're interested. And 
I'm also a quick learner though. So I am learning to understand what, how to evaluate if somebody's a good fit. And, and usually the unfortunate first reality is, do you have a budget, right? If, if somebody, as much as I would love to work for free and be able to give financial education to every single person I can, I can't run a business doing that. And you'll have to use a sales, the advisor, if you want to get it for free. So the first thing is I need to know that there is a budget available. Um, and then the next best thing is how much do you care about your employees? If you kind of care about them, but not enough to spend money on them, it's probably not going to be a good fit because you know, I'm competing with things like a gym membership benefit or um, paying for somebody's commuter benefits, things like that. And while I think financial education conceptually is better than a partial gym membership or paying for commuter benefits, that is very challenging to explain in a world of millennials in San Francisco who demand these because XYZ job before had those to begin with. So I need someone who, it's actually, I call it the mama bear syndrome, which is usually, you know, I come across some folks in HR who think of themselves as the parent to their employees. And they want this because they think their employees are, are similar to what you would envision your children are. And you want your child to be financially educated. And so they really care about how important this is. Those are the types of people that work really well because I know that they're passionate about making sure that they're giving their employees everything they can to be successful and to stay at the company, right? It's a benefit that you would come back for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like that. I would change syndrome to something else. I guess that's else, true. Syndrome because is I was thinking you were going to say something. Yes. I was thinking you were going to go down a different path, but Fair. you know... You'll come up with something. I'll come up with something. You'll better. come up with something. I don't really tell them that that's what yeah, I call them. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, as long as they don't know that. <laughs> um, so um, I'm curious to know what you love the most and what you love the least about being your own boss. What I love the most is I like the ability to decide what the direction is going to be. Uh, I like trying new things. I like to see if this is going, let's just give this a shot. You know, I, when you work in true finance, there's not, you're not allowed to give things a shot. You have to have a, a, a business plan that shows that it's going to work. And if somebody who gets paid more than you decides they don't like it, it's gone. For no reason other than I, I'm getting rid of that. Um, so it's nice to be able to take what I learned on the, the startup side, which is fail fast, and just go for it. Um, as long as it's not going to cost me too much money, it's only my own time at this point. So it's nice to be able to um, try new things. I think the thing that I like the least is I'm not great at sales and marketing. And so I find that to be very challenging. Um, I'm not a salesy person. While I can sell myself easily because I'm just talking about me and telling my stories, you know, having to follow up with people, I feel like I'm pestering them and I don't, you know, I don't like doing those things because I feel pushy. So I'd say that has been very challenging alongside, you know, I like to be very, very busy. If I'm working a 12 hour day, I feel like I'm accomplishing things. And when you're running your own business and you're getting it started, there's only so many things I can be doing to help move the business forward without just spending a ton of money. So sometimes I find in a day, you know, 
what, what, what should I be doing right now? I've sent all the emails I can to anybody who is interested. I've built out the content for everything relevant over the next six months. I don't want to build things too early because it may, it may end up changing completely. So I find sometimes it's hard that I don't have a full day of stimulating brain activity. And so I've, I'm finding creative ways to try and keep that flowing. And it's by bringing on people and, and making sure I'm doing, having interactions with people that also run their own businesses to just intellectually keep me not thinking inside my own brain and always thinking, yeah, Magda, that's genius. Do that, right? I want someone to tell me that's stupid. Don't do that. Here's why. So making sure that I am filling my time with things other than just business, but also growing my learnings about how to run the business and things like that, that, that you really don't, and it's a coffee date, right? I, you know, I don't know if that's considered work, but it is because it helps me think outside myself to help grow the business and it kind of looking at it differently. So you are very, you strike me as being very self-aware. You are extremely confident with what you know, and you are very transparent with what you don't know or what you aren't good at. Where did that come from? Where did that sense of self-awareness and that willingness to be transparent about it, where did that come from? I learned it at a young age through mistakes. Um, when I was, I'll never forget the story if my dad listens to this podcast, he'll laugh. Um, when I was in fourth grade, we had a basketball game and it was a championship game and I was the captain because I'm, you know, I was, I'm very, I'm a very sportsy kind of person. I was athletic. Um, and you know, part of my qualities turns out I am uh, sort of a leader. And so I was made the captain of this team and we lost and I had a hissy and I was like, we, we suck. That was terrible. You know, we played horribly. You know, this is just bad, bad, bad. And I was just cranky and miserable the whole bus ride back. And what ended up happening, which is totally dramatic when you look back on it, but super impactful was they, the coaches brought me in with my parents and were like, we did not like how she handled that. And she should know that she's the leader and you can't do that because now you've got a, a bunch of people on the team who are thinking, well, if she thinks we suck, then like we really must suck. And like, she's better than me. So like, how terrible am I, et cetera, et cetera. All the like crazy rabbit holes that goes down for a fourth grader that you shouldn't do. And so they kicked me off the team. It was the championship game. So they, it wasn't actually like, there was nothing left, but um, they kicked me off the team. And I remember thinking, whoa, like Magda doesn't screw up like this. This is, this is bad. And, um, Ultimately, it got me to realize the power behind power and leadership and that you have to think through what you say, how you say it, when you say it, because in your mind, that is what I was thinking. I was thinking that we played terrible and we deserve to lose because I'm hypercritical of myself. Um, but everyone doesn't deal with things the same way. And so you can't express what you're thinking to people all the time, unless they're very, very close to you and know you very well and know that you don't mean exactly maybe what you're thinking. And so there, there were a couple more instances of that happening in a more adult-like manner over the years where I realized, you know, because I am a hypercritical person of myself, I can't, I can't do that to everybody and so it made me just have to be 
not only self-aware, but aware of other people's feelings and understanding. And it's part of what makes me good at the advisory is, you know, I'm reading people and if something is making them kind of tense up, we got to find a way to, to get rid of that. Um, because, you know, people need to feel comfortable and everyone deals with stress in a different way. And so, you know, I think things like that have made me think internally and about other people just a little differently. I can't, it's like, I can't even imagine that you, but then I also can. Yeah. Um, I remember the first time I met you, I think you were still on, you were in college. Yeah. And you were like the marathon queen. Like that was like, that's what you were into at the time. And you were like, you know, you were in like soccer shorts and um, I just have this like very vivid, vivid image of you as like this hyper achiever. You know, you wanted to push yourself, you wanted to be doing better, um, you wanted to be the best. And I think that that translates very well to this role that you're in now. And I think with that dose of self-awareness and that dose of um, emotional intelligence, um, I think you, I mean, I know that you have just like an incredible career ahead of you. You've already built an incredible career. You're building an incredible business. You helped me in our one, our, in our single session, you helped me totally reframe what I thought about um, about what I have and, and what I'm going to do with it. Um, so you're crushing it. <laughs> Keep it up. How will you know when you've made it? Like, what's your measure of success? I have built incremental uh, versions of success. I don't know that I have a big picture of success. Probably, you know, for the reasons you just stated, which is like, I don't know that there's an end, like a true finish line for folks like us. You know, there's always something else that you could do. Um, so I've made mine small, right? I'm just starting out. I need a one-year goal. You know, I, I have I have a very clear expectation of myself and especially that I've shared with my husband, which is, you know, if, if I can't make enough money doing this business in two years, then back to the workforce I go. Um, I'm not going to try. Listen, I know that if I can't make this successful, it's probably because there's just likely not enough market out there for people who want to pay for this thing. Um, this kind of this kind of education. So I think my idea of success right now is just making it through year one um, and making enough money that I can justify year two. And then year two will have a goal. And I think if I make it to year two and can continue to year three, then I can think a little bit bigger than uh, in terms of what success looks like. Um, but I know I'm in a risky business. I know I'm not going to make as much money as I used to working in true finance. And so I need to become comfortable with that fate of permanently changing my lifestyle to do what I'm super passionate about and making sure that I can still support the lifestyle that my husband maybe wants because he is working very hard and making um, his money as well. And so I think my goals, my idea of success is really short term right now and it's just surviving year one. So I find that as an entrepreneur and also just like anyone these days, the lines between work and life, they're very, very blurry. And um, that makes me wonder, what is the meaning of life? What is the point? And I'm curious from your perspective as we close this episode, for you, what is the meaning of life? I think I've been asked this question before and I feel like I probably change my mind every time if you give it another couple of years it probably changes um you know life's really long 
especially when you work in the advisory space, we constantly tell people, you know, if you retire when you're 60, you'll probably have to have your money working for you and you have to live off of the money that you just earned over the last 30 years, right? You start saving, let's say, when you're 25 until 60, 35 years. You're probably going to live till you're 90, so that's another 30 years that that has to live without you making a salary. So I think life is really long, and every couple years I look back, we kind of talking about this um, earlier before the, the podcast, but you look back on the, the five years before and you're like, man, I was such an idiot, or God, you know, I, I learned so much during that time. Um, so I think at a high level, I think of life as a very long learning period where you're constantly trying to do things that excite you and push you and motivate you so that you can feel like you are adding value to your life and, and really the people around you um, in some form or fashion, whatever that value is that you think uh, you can add. It doesn't have to be financially, it can be emotionally, it can be through any type of, if it's career or otherwise. Um, so I think life is, is just trying to make sure you can get by because you want to survive and having things is really nice. Um, it's nice to, to be able to buy things, you know, generally when you want them. Um, but yeah, continuing to learn and grow and and always be able to look back on the years before and say you feel smarter than you were back then. Well, thank you so much for making time and for sharing your wisdom. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. You've been listening to This Guy's Legit. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Dorsey, with editing by Drew Dorsey and original music by Taylor Joshua Rankin. This Guy's Legit is executive produced by Boningold. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe to get the next episode automatically. And if you really like what you heard, leave a review. And follow us on Instagram at This Guy's Legit.